This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Dr. Margaret Ziegler, Executive Director of the Global Harvest Initiative. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Global sugar subsidies are increasing at a threat to 142,000 sugar industry jobs in the U.S. Learn more about the American Sugar Alliance Zero for Zero Sugar Policy at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Dr. Margaret Ziegler next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. They know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. The plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy. And you can learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Despite the productivity gains that U.S. farmers and other global producers have achieved, the sum of their production advances has not been able to offset lagging production in low-income countries. The Global Harvest Initiative released its ninth annual GAP study during the World Food Prize last week in Iowa. Dr. Margaret Ziegler says this report indicates a disturbing trend. For the last five years, the productivity that we need globally is not keeping up with really where we need to be to sustainably produce food and to avoid the worst impacts on our environment. So the GAP study recently suggested you need to be at a 1.75% growth, but you're not meeting that mark. And some low-income countries, instead of improving, are actually declining. Right. You know, we are very concerned not only about the global trends, but particularly about the low-income countries. The United Nations has set some really wonderful targets called the Sustainable Development Goals. And in Sustainable Development Goal 2, which calls all of us to work together to end hunger by 2030, they've called for a a doubling of productivity for particularly smallholder farmers and low-income countries. And what we're seeing now is far off of that target. Um, In our GAP report, we create the GAP index, and what it's showing is that the low-income countries for the fifth straight year have declined, and they are only at 0.96% rate of growth per year. And if you take that line all the way out to 2050, we're going to have a huge gap. And that has some really bad consequences for folks in these countries. Such a paradox. And I suggest this now from U.S. agriculture and the farmer perspective and the fact that with grains and commercial grains of corn and of soy and of wheat, We may not be at record carryover supplies, but we are at more than ample carryover supplies. Farm income down over the past 60 months plus, and it looks like 2019 doesn't offer a lot of different change. We are in a surplus, yet we're Mm -hmm. looking at the long range and suggesting that what we're doing really isn't enough. How do we speak to that? First of all, you know, we have agricultural business cycles, as you know, and and in our GAP report, we feature a a case study on this. And we have these booms and busts in agriculture. Just really a few short years ago, we maybe have forgotten, but in 07, 08, 09, we um, we had a shortage. We had a global food price crisis because there were a number of issues surrounding that, but uh, prices of food catapulted up almost overnight. 
there were riots in many countries, and you know what you saw was a, a real shortage and people being thrown into hunger. So we kind of have forgotten about that, and and in many ways the world ramped up production after that, and for a number of reasons we have a sufficient supply right now. Uh, one of the things that we're uh, concerned about is, of course, the trade piece. So you know, for a fully functioning good system, you've got to have productivity, which is not necessarily just output. Productivity is uh, producing more and producing better and producing better quality and reducing those inputs, uh, particularly land expansion. But then you've got to have trade. So it all works together as a system. And right now, of course, as everyone knows, in the heartland of America, we've got some trade challenges uh, that we're facing. And we need to get that open trade moving again as soon as possible. Some are very encouraged and hopeful of trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and Mm -hmm. others that would open the door to areas where there is clear need for food. Mm -hmm. Do these trade agreements, though, as well, quell opportunity for those countries to help themselves? Well, we've seen over history that countries that practice trade protection to perhaps produce an, an internal market or an internal producer... It really backfires in the long run. Uh, what we've seen uh, as trade increases and as trade flow increases, particularly with agriculture, consumers, as I mentioned, that are growing into the middle class and want higher quality foods are able to purchase those foods and at a better price. Now, you know, if you can focus in your country on investing in your agriculture sector and your rural sector, you can start competing and that will make your own sector much better. Also, internationally, producers may wish to have access to some services. So many of the wonderful services in agriculture that have been developed in the United States could actually go in and help some of the developing countries improve their own productivity in agriculture. So it's not just about trade in commodities or finished products. Uh, it's also about trade in services. So some of these services could help many of these countries develop farm and off-farm activities. So we think that uh, agreements like the TPP would have been very good for not only our agriculture, but for other countries' agriculture systems because they raise the bar on standards, food safety, and animal welfare, and also on labor issues. And we haven't talked much yet about labor in agriculture, but I did want to mention that in the GAP report, we do cover a little bit more about the issue of labor, not only in the U.S., but globally, the importance of agricultural labor and some of the trends that are happening there and some of the impacts of climate change on labor. So with regard to those low-income countries, how do we help them produce more? Is it better technology? Uh, is it better climate? Is it education? Is the acceptance of, of biotechnology? What are the things that we can do to help them? What we want to focus on is not just production. We really want to focus on productivity. And in our GAP report, we have um, a really wonderful graphic that shows what that is. We measure productivity with something called total factor productivity. And that's kind of a economic ag jargon there. But for those outside the ag economist world, it really just means getting more and growing it efficiently and really creating a sustainable intensification type model. And what we aim for is a productivity-led strategy, meaning you want to really understand, you know, using best practices, using most recent innovation, 
using fewer animals but more meat or milk or eggs per animal. And all of these things have a lot of impact on the environment. So what we're calling for is really more productivity, not production alone. So helping the low-income countries do this, one of the first places you can start is the countries themselves taking a public policy aim and producing more ag research and ag research centers for their own local context. So one of the key policy goals that we have at the Global Harvest Initiative is to really ramp up these investments in public ag R&D and extension services. That's In many ways, that's how the U.S. got started on our productivity trend many years ago. And many developing countries don't have that yet. So, you know, uh, we call for more investment, not only by the countries themselves, but investment partnerships to really help uh, that talent pipeline of researchers and scientists and extension agents in those countries. Some countries are really doing that, and, and they're making great progress. Uh, I can think of one country in particular, Rwanda, has, has shown an amazing focus on investing in ag research and development and extension. So that's one strategy. Another one is for public-private partnerships in research, and we talk a lot about that in our GAP report. So those are the kinds of things that we're talking about when we talk about improving productivity. And then I guess the last thing is really helping those farmers that need technology get access to it. You know, we have plenty of great technology and innovation existing now that if they were applied to many of the low-income countries or smallholder farmer situations, they would be able to, you know, right away start improving their productivity and lessen their dependence on a, a number of things that might be costly for them but would help them boost productivity on their existing land. So the acceptance of biotechnology and genetic engineering and traits is one that has logjammed a number of producers, especially in the arid uh, climates where new genetics could help them achieve more, but yet their governments and their populace don't appear to be willing to accept it. Exactly. So there's a lot of discussion about, you know, how can we assure consumers and governments and all the participants in the food and agriculture system that these technologies are safe and useful. And so there's been a lot of discussion about really providing traits and and benefit in the food themselves for consumers. So perhaps a better nutrition, a better shelf life, more wholesome foods that are biofortified. Those are things that people are increasingly interested in around the world. And um, this is a trend that we've noted in our GAP report that it's not anymore just about access to abundant food. It's access to safe, nutritious, healthy food and foods that really make a difference at the household level for people. Well, it's two things. Number one, it's the the, the place that you are today and the work that you're doing today, but you're also keeping the vision and the dream alive of Norman Borlaug, who started this vision, and now your group and others are trying to continue his dream. There are so many groups that have now come on board. It's really been exciting to see them this week. And uh, World Food Days, you know, it was October 16th on Tuesday. And globally, there's been so much attention on healthy, nutritious, sustainable food. That's, that is the new focus. When Norm got started back in the 60s and 70s, there just wasn't sufficient food at all. And so his focus was 
let's get the yield up. You know, let's help smallholder farmers, particularly in South Asia, get access to wheat and better crops like wheat and, and corn. And that was really the first step, and we're building upon those steps. But there's been dramatic changes in the food system, and they need to happen. They need to happen, and I think uh, consumers are now realizing that, well, we have enough food, but maybe it's not the best kind of food. What of the growing middle class? What role of global growth, and what about growth of the middle class as you look at your objective of having enough food, fiber, and fuel? In our GAP report, we mention uh, a recent study that came out by Brookings Institution, and one of the leading scholars there is Homi Karas, and he's done a lot of research on the, on the middle class and the rise of the middle class. And really, in just a few short years, over 50% of the world population will be in the middle class. That doesn't look the same in every single country, but it definitely is a trend that's going to keep happening and growing in the next 20 to 30 years. So we outline this in the GAP report. We give some examples from China and from sub-Saharan Africa. And this is a trend that's happening not just in the U.S. So just as an example, in China, there are rapidly rising incomes. And in response to this, consumers are starting to really want different kinds of, of foods. And more than 82% of Chinese consumers are willing to pay more for food that they know are of higher quality or more nourishing or lack undesirable ingredients. So the food safety angle for the Chinese population is really, really a powerful driver. In sub-Saharan Africa, you're seeing the same kind of trend. Urban consumers, particularly in the middle class, are wanting to have higher value foods. Something like 70% of the rice that is purchased in sub-Saharan Africa now is high-grade, high-quality rice. The problem is there's not enough of it in the continent, so it's, it's being imported. And this is really a great growing opportunity for African farmers. If they could improve the quality and nutrition of their rice, they could meet some of that African demand that's coming. What about plant-based foods, whether plant-based meats or plant-based dairy products or even now the advent of cultured meats? Are these paradigms that can affect the, the numbers of the GAP report? Well, the productivity is going to be perhaps affected by that, but it's going to take a number of years for some of these innovations really to achieve scale in the marketplace. Uh, they are exciting, though. I think that there's a place for all of this research, all of this innovation. A lot of disruptive change is coming, and it's already here, really. Uh, and the trend that I see is really along this productivity line and along the lines of just greater awareness of the content of food, how it's produced, and the nutritional quality and safety of it. So for things like uh, cell cultures, uh, meat, I think that that's a bit of a ways off, uh, frankly, but, but it, has, it has great potential, particularly for consumers perhaps who are concerned about some of those sustainability issues or health issues or animal welfare issues. But in the developing world, we're still seeing a rising demand for meat, and that demand for meat in the developing world is going to nearly double in the next 20 years. Uh, will these technologies be able to be scaled to the extent and transferred to 
these countries in the developing world, that remains to be seen. And another thing to keep in mind, a lot of these developing countries, farmers really rely on their livestock as part of an integrated system of land management and jobs. So, you know, there's just a lot of considerations when you think about these these uh, food shifts. But I think there's, there's promise in this. It just may take some time. We are limited in the number of acres that would be available for expansion. We're limited on water. We certainly uh, can't change climate. We're moreover trying to survive the the changes that we're seeing in climate now. Uh, and certainly our inputs, uh, either from a cost perspective or of availability perspective, are all limitations and the things that we can do to be productive from each acre. So I'm looking at the figure that we need to be at 1.75, that we're at 1.51. What are the things that you see or what are the things now that should be addressed to help us to change this trend? You look at this trend and you look at it by income of country level. And again, you look at those low-income countries. We're making some progress in the upper-middle-income countries. So uh, if you go to the GAP report online, you can really see a number of different regional breakouts for the, the GAP productivity numbers. And the upper-middle-income countries have actually boosted their productivity pretty significantly. It's the low-income countries and the lower-middle-income countries. These are classifications that the World Bank makes. It's these countries where we really need to, to focus for the next 10 to 20 years on helping them shift away from this land expansion to meet demand and focus instead on innovation and productivity. Those are the, the countries and the regions where really we have to focus. And it's going to be tough. Should we expect to see those areas perhaps as growth opportunities for farm machinery and other uh, infrastructure to develop a, a more productive agriculture? Oh, absolutely. I know that a number of private sector companies and development agencies and homegrown businesses in Africa are really excited about the potential. There's plenty of openness to growing agriculture more productively. There's a clamor among the next generation of young people to be involved in agriculture. However, many of them are a bit concerned about practicing the kind of agriculture that their parents and grandparents practiced. So the real opportunity is with the next generation of African youth, and in youth in Latin America and Asia to really take a new model of agriculture, a more modern form of agriculture, taking it out to, to those folks. And they have some really great innovation. I met some wonderful young leaders from Nigeria who had discovered and were creating apps for farmers in Nigeria and other parts of Africa, um, all kinds of technology that they are creating to make agriculture uh, better for the lives of the growers and for consumers who need the food. Well, Dr. Ziegler, we want to thank you very much for spending time with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic. You have the last word. <laughs> thank you so much. And for all the listeners out there, if you've never been to the World Food Prize and Borlaug Dialogue, we hope that at some point you can make it out here. It's really, truly an inspirational week. And we encourage everyone to do that if they can. Our thanks to Dr. Margaret Ziegler, Executive Director of the Global Harvest Initiative, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. 
Global sugar subsidies are increasing and a threat to 142,000 sugar industry jobs in the U.S. Learn more about the American Sugar Alliance Zero for Zero Sugar Policy at SugarAlliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.